Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. folks, Marcel here to welcome you to the bonus episode that we promised upon hitting our fundraising goal for Palestine Children's Relief Fund. As of this recording, you, our listening community, have raised $8,600, and our goal was $5,000. That's amazing! And we are so grateful to you and your generosity and for your resource sharing and messages of solidarity. This bonus episode is a conversation between me and Hannah about an article of mine published back in 2015. We have the text of the article available for you to read if you're interested, and in a moment you'll hear me read out the abstract. We had planned for me to read out the article in its entirety, but it actually contains a fair bit of transliterated Arabic and Hebrew, not to mention lengthy dialogue that moves back and forth between Arabic, Hebrew, and awkwardly translated English. With the exception of the Baruch Ataz and the Mourner's Kaddish, I don't speak Hebrew, and I speak even less Arabic. We decided that it would be better to link you directly to the text of the article rather than inviting you to listen to me struggle through two ancient and beautiful languages. Before we jump into the episode, I want to give you an important content warning. I wrote this paper in 2014 in response to anti-Arab and anti-Palestinian racism here in North America. That racism wasn't new in 2014, and it remains powerful and widespread today, almost 10 years later, 
amplified by the mainstream media's dehumanizing portrayals of Palestinians in its coverage of the so-called Israel-Hamas war. My conversation with Hannah is very much about that racism and that dehumanization. It's about the discourses that perpetuate dehumanizing stereotypes about Palestinians and Arabs. You may, understandably, not have the spoons for that conversation right now, and that's okay. It'll be here for you when you're ready, and you're always welcome to pass the episode on to someone who's looking for more information about the ongoing crisis. Thanks again for supporting Witch Please Productions and our collective contribution to the urgently needed financial aid for Palestine Children's Relief Fund. On to the episode. Abstract 4. Comic Relief. The Ethical Intervention of Avodah Arivit, Arab Labor, in Political Discourses of Israel-Palestine, by Marcel Kosman. When it comes to Western discourses of Israel-Palestine, the value and efficacy of satire as a vehicle for both critique and reconciliation are often underappreciated and rarely employed. Canadians and Americans in particular treat the ongoing geopolitical conflict almost exclusively in the serious terms of security, a discursive paradigm that consistently positions Arab Israelis and Palestinians as security threats. By contrast, Israeli mainstream media accommodates vibrant satirical counter-discourse critical of the Israeli state that is entirely absent in North America. In this article, I argue that due to the closeness of the country's political and economic ties with Israel, it is essential that Canadian and American public discourses move beyond framing Israeli-Palestinian relations exclusively in terms of security. This article, therefore, aims to intervene in these discourses by arguing that satire, and comedy in particular, can engage Israeli-Palestinian relations more ethically than the dominant security paradigm. To begin this intervention, the paper conducts a close reading of Avodah Arevit, an Israeli television sitcom about Arabs living in Israel, demonstrating the show's simultaneous nation-building function and criticism of Israeli state policies through satire and comedy. Are you ready? I'm ready. Great. Amazing, because I am really excited to talk to you about this article. I'm going to start off by saying, I love reading your writing. <laughs> You're such a good writer. <laughs> I always, every time I read any like academic article you've written, I'm like, God, I would love reading academic work more in general <laughs> if more people wrote like this. Uh, thank you. It is why it takes me so long to produce anything. Yeah, you gotta lower you gotta lower the overall quality is what I say. Um, <laughs> but I would I would love to start with just a little bit of background on how you came to like know about this series and write this article. So I'm not sure if you remember, but back when I was a master's student who had uh, a lot more energy than I have now. I wanted to write my PhD about Canadian literary representations of Israel and Palestine. I don't remember that. Huh. Yeah, that was that was where I thought I was going and I got a lot of negative pushback both from like well-intentioned academics who were like the 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 path that you are signing yourself up for is going to be bleak and not fun. 
Little did I know that that's just the nature of the PhD anyway, but maybe that's what they were saying. I, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> maybe I only heard what I wanted to hear, which is if you choose a different topic, it'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wrote, I wrote my dissertation on, you know, Canadian literary representations of foreign sites of crisis. So like the Ethiopian famine and the Cambodian genocide and, you know, the war in Vietnam. And uh, I will say that it was so fucking depressing. You know, I learned a ton. I learned a ton. I think I learned a lot of stuff that has been really politically formative for me. And I didn't have to deal with the rampant anti-Palestinian sentiment that pervades Western culture and Western academia. And that would have been, I think, a big piece of what you would have been dealing with. Yeah. I had a conversation with a student recently who came to talk to me because they were feeling really like, they were feeling really at a loss about how poorly the university, the University of Alberta has has been responding both at a structural level, but also on an individual level, like friends of theirs uh, having conversations in class shut down because like, we're not talking about, we're not talking about this. And I think a lot of people are experiencing that for the first time, like maybe a lot of folks who would have been too young, especially to have these conversations during the last time, like Gaza was was really in the media, which was around the time that I wrote this paper, which is about a decade ago. (laughs) (laughs) Came out in 2015, right? It was published in 2015, but I wrote it. So you wrote it a decade ago. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So to answer your question, <laughs> how did I get here? <laughs> One of the things, because I wanted I wanted to write about literary representations of Israel-Palestine, I think at some point I wanted to talk about humor. I wanted to bring up humor, but I wasn't sure exactly how. And the 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 friend that I that I acknowledge in the paper, Jacob Passel, he is the one who introduced me to the series in the first place and was like, I think you would really like this series. It's very smart. It sounds a lot like what it is that you're interested in. And as a wedding gift, he sent me a copy of the DVD because you couldn't buy it in Canada, but you could buy it in America where they have so much freedom. And so he bought a copy and sent it to me as a gift. That's really lovely. It was, yeah, it's really, really nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He and I go back a very long way. <laughs> so one of the sort of central arguments that you are making in this paper is about the kind of generally humorless framing in which North Americans talk about Israel and Palestine. But particularly, you emphasize the fact that conversations about Israel and Palestine in North America tend to be framed through discourses of security. Can you talk a little bit more about what a discourse of security is? Because I think we're seeing it a lot right now. So when I say discourse of security, what I mean is language that tends to insist that we understand this and I'm going to I'm going to use the term conflict even though it is a problematic and an unsatisfying term, but I'm I'm going to use it for now. We can be more specific later. But so with respect to Israel's occupation of Palestine, particularly the West Bank and Gaza, we tend to hear conversations about it that frame 
the security, the sovereignty of Israel, the right of Israel to exist, the right of Israel to defend itself, all like these tend to be the kind of um the kind of phrases that we hear used a lot. And then the sort of the sort of parallel to that with any kind of Palestinian resistance or any kind of Palestinian organized uh, efforts at decolonization, those tend to get framed in terms of terrorism. So like, well, this organ, well, Hamas is not Palestine. And like, you're right, Palestine is much bigger than Hamas, but Hamas is also the government in Gaza, which what which has come into being in a decades-long period of occupation and ethnic cleansing and genocide. And so like, when I talk about the limitations of these discourses, what I'm what I'm trying to argue is that always framing this ongoing conflict in terms of security always makes Israel a victim and always makes Palestinians the aggressor, no matter what the actual facts on the ground are. Okay. Okay. So so the security discourse isn't just about sort of insisting on thinking about the relationship between Israel and Palestine vis-a-vis conversations of like sovereignty and borders, but is about a particular framing of like, here is a sovereign state and here are the terrorist groups that threaten its sovereignty. Yes, exactly. I I feel like if we were to have a public conversation about sovereignty in a way that was sincere, we sincerely wanted to talk about sovereignty in Israel and Palestine, we could be having very different conversations that that address the my my favorite example is the fact that a two-state solution is literally impossible because of the way that Palestinian sovereignty has been particularly eroded around things like access to water, access to resources, having a coherent or a continuous border. So the conversations that say claim to be about nationhood or about like this the state of Israel and about like its right to exist are always framed in a way that refuses conversations about what sovereignty means and what it looks like in favor of this sort of defensive position of security. Well, we, well, at all costs, we must defend the security of the state of Israel. It's like, well, well, we can't have a conversation then about the fact that it is committing war crimes. Yeah. You know? And that is... A framing. I mean, so much of this resonates with with reading and research that I have done about discourses of security in Canada, which, you know, framing yourself as sort of always already under threat is a like a major contemporary tactic that nations use to defend internal and external violence. Right, that that we see it directed internally in terms of profoundly racist immigration laws, in terms of you know a genocidal treatment of indigenous people, as only two of many examples, and then we see it operating you know outwardly, including in things like the Canadian government's continuing breathtaking refusal to call for a ceasefire. I feel like I should be beyond surprised in moments like this, but I still, for whatever naive reason, am like. Wait, what? 
it turns out, Hannah, that you may just have a modicum of humanity left in you. <laughs> How dare you? Yeah, so this this all sort of really resonates in terms of how discourses of security operate. And so what you are doing in this article is arguing for the possibility of different kinds of framings of the relationship between, particularly between Israelis and Palestinians in Israel, but also sort of more generally through that, you know, those those relationships in the show also between Israel and Palestine as political entities. So can you talk a little bit about what it is that made you want to start talking about comedy and comedic framings of like, you know, very challenging topics? Yeah, I think um, there are so many possible ways to answer your question. I think maybe the thing that comes to mind first is the fact that like a lot of us use humor as a defense mechanism. Humor is historically a very common defense mechanism among Jewish, among the Jewish diasporic communities. And I also think that for me, I've grown up understanding that humor is a very powerful tool of, of political critique and, and of political satire. So like, Maybe maybe it's a generational thing. I don't know, but like, we certainly came up in the this hour is twenty two minutes and Daily Show era. Yes, yes, yes. We absolutely did, and there are just sometimes saying something ironically is so much more powerful than trying to articulate why that statement is like inherently flawed. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking right now about like onion headlines, like the onion, when you will, mm-hmm. you will look at a moment where like every fucking headline is so mealy mouthed and cowardly. And then the onion is the like news outlet that like says the quiet part out loud. And they can say the quiet part out loud because satire is historically a tool for speaking truth to power. And so it allows you this kind of, it's not really a protection, but it's like an approach from a different angle that like, you can be like, it's just a joke. I'm going to say the thing that we all all know, (laughs) it's a joke. And suddenly, turns out that there are some people who can't take a joke. The same people who constantly are like, what, you can't take a joke? (laughs) Oh, yeah? Well, how about we have a conversation about your shitty ideologies? <laughs> Not so funny now, huh? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so you're, you know, drawn to comedy and the capacity that it has to do this kind of political critique. So how does comedy frame Israel and Palestine differently than security does? So I in I really bit off more than I could chew <laughs> when I started writing this paper. Like there was a there was I remember at one point there was I was writing it at night at a friend's house in in um in Ottawa and I and I was like I was literally going to the library website and reading reading textbooks about how television comedy functions in order to like make my argument about the about 
<laughs> about the nation building function of this sitcom mm-hmm. and being like, I don't actually know what a sitcom is. I got to <laughs> learn about what a sitcom is. <laughs> and I think like there are, there are lots of different types of comedy for sure. But one of the reasons why the sitcom in particular, why this sitcom, Avoda Aravit in particular, is really, really effective. And for me, the main thing is, is because it centers a Palestinian family being a family as opposed to the the dominant narrative that I see across leftist media of let's try to understand the Palestinian struggle, which is why are they turning to terrorism? Look at all these terrorists. They had no choice but to become terrorists because of all of these hard, hard times. And that's why they've become terrorists. Whereas Avoda Aravit is like, hey, you know what? This Palestinian family, they got to get their kid into a daycare. That's the crisis of the episode. They've got to get their kid into a daycare. And so it shifts the focus completely away from terrorism and onto the fact that these people are human beings, like not just just monsters, you know, coming for the coming for the decent civilized singular singular civilized country in an otherwise war-torn chaotic um do you, you know you know what i'm you know what i'm referring to yeah i mean the like the framing of the middle east as being full of ah barbaric that's the word i was looking for like framing it as barbaric deep islamophobic yeah. ongoing narrative mm-hmm. that islam is irreconcilable from democracy and from liberalism like these obviously readily disprovable claims that that stick like a bird or a cultural narratives in the West because they justify the ongoing imperial violence of Western states. And, you know, the flip side of that is is the narrative of the, you know, the tragic victim, which is itself, if we look to like the work of like Susan Sontag on regarding the pain of others or Sadia Hartman, that subjects who are predominantly represented as suffering, that that is still a pretty profoundly dehumanizing way to talk about people. And so there is this this way that the sitcom provides an entry point into a kind of everydayness, because that is kind of part of the function of the sitcom, isn't it? That it lets you just see these like weird small moments in people's lives and the kind of silliness and absurdity that is by the very nature of the genre meant to be relatable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's prime time as well, right? It's like, like there are certain kinds of satire that you expect and can get away with when it's like late night TV. But there's something about the primetime sitcom that is so like, this is content for the average person. Everybody can can relate to this in some way. And at the time before I published the paper, when this was just a conference paper that I was delivering, I made the comparison between Will and Grace, which is another sitcom that I don't know well. And I didn't really watch it growing up because I didn't, I didn't need to. I don't know if, I hope that comes, I hope people know what I mean when I say that. I'm just going to explain a little bit. Like, I feel like so much of the function I had heard of gay people. I knew gay people. I knew that they were human beings with like lives and feelings and interests beyond just 
being gay. And so like the the work, the very flawed and limited work that Will and Grace did, like a big part of that was introducing the humanity of queer people into prime time. And this television series about a Palestinian family does that same kind of work. It is also very flawed. <laughs> it's a very flawed show for sure, especially later in the seasons when like there is a lot of actual homophobia that comes out in the show because it's still funny in this context for these viewers. So like at no point am I trying to make the argument that like this show is a paradigm of like political righteousness, but rather that when it comes to this kind of work, this sitcom in particular is doing really important work that we don't see happening elsewhere. Can you talk a little bit more about like how the creator's ultimate decision to leave Israel may or may not reframe your argument about like the political efficacy of comedy? Oh, Lord. So, okay. <laughs> so... At this point, it may be a little bit apocryphal. I'm not sure exactly. I'm not sure exactly how the timing went, but like this, this paper, this paper took a long time to get published for a number of reasons. Not because I had a hard time finding a home for it, but just because of the sometimes the process of getting a paper scholarly publishing is slow. So lengthy, right? So long, and I think the journal had been bought by Taylor and Francis in the midst of that publication process. So it like added an additional year or something. I, I, I'm not sure exactly, but anyway. And I think I think for folks for folks who, who are reading the paper for the first time, which is going to be 100% of them. <laughs> <laughs> Shockingly, the paper never went viral. You can probably hear that I start out pretty op optimistic. I don't, maybe optimistic isn't the right There's word. There's a bit of an arc and... It almost feels at the beginning like I can sense a little bit of that. I'm about to do my PhD and I'm going to write about this stuff. And this is just the beginning of a whole world I'm exploring. <laughs> it sort of goes through this like by the end, you're like, well. Uh... Yeah, because then what happened? Let me just see if I can find the find the the possibilities I mean, page, and limitations page, of comedy. Page 15, yeah. It would be disingenuous, however, however to ignore in this conclusion yeah. the fact that at the time of mm -hmm. writing, Abadah Aravid's creator, mm -hmm. Sayed Kashwa, decided to leave Israel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that happened basically in between edits. And so I remember having, I remember having a real moment where I was like, well, now I need to make a decision. I need to decide if the whole paper is is worthless or if I just like I break the fourth wall and now I'm just sitting on the desk looking at the classroom and saying like and now now I pull aside the curtain and tell you the real truth, which is that turns out you can't do nation building when the people in power in that nation are trying to murder you and your family. Turns out. It just turns out. So I don't remember what your question was. What was your question? What was the, the it was, how so does it, it complicate my thesis? It was that. It was how does it complicate <laughs> your thesis? But you know, like part of me is just sort of moving in the direction of this, like, you know, he leaves Israel because it's literally not safe. 
I mean, speaking of discourses of security, like he leaves Israel because ultimately he can't raise his children there. And when we talk about what art can do, particularly in moments like this one, right? Moments when we are witnessing just unspeakable human suffering, it can feel like, oh, nothing. It can't do anything. It can't do anything because it's not stopping this. I, and I feel like in, in, a, in a sort of microcosmic way, you had to kind of work through that in this paper. <laughs> that you were like, oh, yeah, I can do yeah. something. And then getting to the end of being like, ah, uh, mm. something. Something, but not everything. Not everything all at once. And I think that that's why I ultimately decided not to just say, well, fuck this whole paper. Like, sorry, editors, I'm pulling it. This is all garbage. Everything is meaningless. Because the thing is, I am but one person. And this show had a really big impact on me. I already had the politics that I had, but this show was really was really helpful and formative for me in terms of understanding like the way in which the leftist Jews in Israel are also like trying, but coming up against their own limitations and and coming to realize how like they themselves can and do contribute to these to these issues. Like like that was very that was very helpful for me in terms of understanding that this is a nuanced conflict. It is not one, it is not, it is not Jews versus Arabs. It is much, it is much more complicated than that. But the show cannot do everything. The show can only do what it as a sitcom can do. And we got to a point, I say we, uh, the, the, the show, the world, Kashua and his family, like they got to a point where it was no longer safe for them to be there. They prioritized, they had the ability to leave. And so they did. Not everybody has that ability. But I think if this show, this is, I don't want to sound Pollyanna about this, but this show does certain things that I think are, are continue to be valuable. And one is that they, is that the show continues to educate viewers, whether they happen to be citizens of Israel or 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 are international like me. Um, and the show, I think, provides a blueprint or provides a kind of a kind of roadmap for the types of art that can follow it. Because Kashua is not the only Kashua is not the only person with those politics who is writing about this issue, right? The actors on the show are not only playing allies. They are themselves allies and they continue to do and make art that is like in like various, variously successful in, in different ways. Like it's, it's the show wasn't for nothing. It just, it's just no single piece of art, no single piece of cultural production can undo decades of ethnic cleansing decades of intergenerational trauma, decades of of misinformation and racism. Like it can't and and it doesn't need to, I think. I would argue <laughs> stop attacking me, <laughs> readers. I think I think it is still I think it is fair to argue that that the show does continue to to do to to have a nation building function even if it ultimately is not successful. And I think part of why that's important to me as somebody who does not really have a horse in this race is, is because 
like I like I said earlier, a two-state solution isn't possible. It's become impossible. And when when Trevor and I were were traveling in 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 Israel and Palestine, we talked to a lot of Palestinians, obviously not like a per, a percentage, but like we talked to a lot of regular people living in Palestine, living in Israel who are like, no, like a two-state solution is illogical. We need to have one state where everybody has access to their rights. That's that's what makes sense. And and the show does that so beautifully. Like the show calls for and argues for that so beautifully in a way that the discourse of security refuses to even entertain the possibility that you could have Palestinians freely wandering the streets of Israel without bombing things like like it's sorry i'm carried i'm carried away i'm emotional i am also emotional (laughs) emotional about this topic yeah you know what and and good quite rightly so marcel i've really enjoyed getting to talk about this this article with you thank you so much for wanting to talk about it with me. You know, when you when you write a thing that you know people are going to get mad about and you want to talk about it, but they're, but like the opportunities to talk about it are with potentially like, with people who are yelling at the back of the room saying like, you want me and all my family to die, <laughs> which is in fact something I've heard people shouting, not at me, but at other people also arguing for uh, peace in the Middle East. And it's really, really wonderful to talk about these issues with somebody who is on the same page about decolonization and genocide and and ethnic cleansing being bad. And I'm really, really grateful that we got to talk about it. Thank you for listening. This bonus was produced by our team at Witch Please Productions. That's Gabby Iori, Zoe Mix, and Hannah Rehack a.k.a. Coach. Our show is mixed by the wonderful Eric Magnus, and our theme music is called Shopping Mall by Auto Syndicate. To learn more about Witch Please Productions, you can head to owitchplease.ca. Stay strong and take care of yourselves. <laughs>